Hello, this is Bob, and this is the first lecture in an online course I put together at Princeton a few years ago when I was teaching a seminar there on Buddhism and modern psychology. For a long time, this course was on the Coursera platform under Princeton's sponsorship, but then Princeton changed its Coursera policy such that it would no longer sponsor courses taught by people who were no longer teaching at Princeton which is a description I fit. So, we've moved the course to a secret location on YouTube and made the secret URL available to all subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter. And, as a treat for paid newsletter subscribers, we took the audio from the lectures and turned it into this podcast version of the course, just in case an audio-only version suits your lifestyle better than an audio-video version. Now, there are a few places in these seven or so hours of lectures where you might get some benefit from the video version, like when I show a graph or, in one case, write actual words on an actual blackboard. But there aren't many places like that, and I think you'll usually be able to sense where they are, and if you want, you can check in with the video version of the course. And even if you never check in with the video version, you'll certainly get the gist of the course. So, without further ado, here are the lectures. I hope you get something out of them. Buddhism and Modern Psychology Lecture 1. The Buddhist Diagnosis Part 1. Introduction. Religious Buddhism and Secular Buddhism Hi, welcome to my course on Buddhism and Modern Psychology. I'm Robert Wright, and I'm here at Princeton University, where for the past couple of years I've been teaching the seminar that this course will be based on. Now, I've never taught an online course before, so I'm very excited about this. It's kind of an adventure for me, um, and I want to thank you all for choosing to be part of it. I want to spend the, the first segment of this first lecture just giving you an overview of, of the main themes of the course, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about myself um, and what got me interested in this. Um, now one question you could ask about a course called Buddhism and Modern Psychology is which Buddhism are we talking about? After all, uh, as with other religions, there are varieties of Buddhism, just as there are different denominations of Christianity. There are different versions of Buddhism in Asia, and in addition to that, uh, in, in recent decades we've seen the emergence of something that some people are calling a Western Buddhism in the United States, where I am, in Europe, and so on, uh, consisting of people who weren't born Buddhist but have chosen to adopt uh, Buddhist practice, in particular meditation uh, practice. Now, one distinctive feature of this Western Buddhism is that these people don't pay a lot of attention to what some people would call the supernatural parts of Buddhism. So, for example, if you took some of these Western Buddhists and showed them this, they'd say, what is that? Well, the answer is it's a hungry ghost, and many Asian Buddhists believe that you might be reincarnated as a hungry ghost in a kind of hell if things don't go well, or if things go better, you might wind up in a, in, in, in a heaven and spend years there before being reincarnated again. But the, this Western Buddhism doesn't really pay much attention to these kinds of ideas. Um, and in that sense, the focus of this course will have something in common with the Western Buddhism because we won't be talking much about things like Buddhist deities or reincarnation. And the reason is simple. 
This course is about the scientific evaluation of Buddhist ideas. And reincarnation is just not an idea that's very susceptible to scientific evaluation. I don't know how you'd set up an experiment to kind of test the hypothesis of reincarnation. Now, uh, there are lots of ideas in, in Buddhism that are what you might call naturalistic. That is to say, they are susceptible to scientific evaluation. A lot of ideas about the human mind. So, for example, Buddhism addresses questions like, why do people suffer? Why do we all feel anxiety and sadness and so on? Um, why do people behave unkindly sometimes? Uh, does the human mind deceive people about the nature of reality? Um, and can we change the way the mind works, in particular through meditation? Now, I want to emphasize that this kind of naturalistic part of Buddhism is an authentic part of Buddhist heritage. It's found in the earliest writings, and it is uh, common to Asian Buddhism and, and Western Buddhism. It's, it's kind of a common denominator of Buddhisms. Now, some people refer to this as a secular Buddhism, but that may be a little misleading um, because I think it's possible to have a wholly naturalistic worldview that does address uh, some of the questions that religions address and does do for people some of the things religion does for people. So, for example, uh, I think a naturalistic worldview, including this naturalistic Buddhism, can, in principle, give people a sense that their lives have meaning, give them moral orientation, give them consolation in times of sorrow, um, give them equanimity as they encounter the turbulence of life. Now, whether that means that you could call this naturalistic version of Buddhism uh, religious depends ultimately on how you are going to define religion. One of the, one of the broadest definitions I've seen uh, comes from William James, the great American psychologist, who said that the kind of animating essence of religion is the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves thereto. Now, Buddhism does, in a sense, say that there is an unseen order that we should adjust ourselves to. Now, it's not talking about a kind of cosmic plan. Uh, the unseen order that is referred to is the truth about the way things work, the truth about the structure of reality, the truth about human beings, even the truth about yourself. According to Buddhism, these truths often go unseen because the human mind contains certain built-in uh, distortions, illusions. We don't see the world clearly. And Buddhism certainly does assert that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves to this normally hidden truth. And in fact, uh, Buddhism uh, lays out a path for the harmonious adjustment. Um, it, 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 it lays out what it considers to be the truth about reality and tells us what we need to do to bring our lives in line with that reality. Um, and the claim, the Buddhist claim is that uh, we can thereby relieve our suffering, even end our suffering, um, and in the process align ourselves with moral truth. At least that's the claim. That is the Buddhist claim. Is it true? Is the Buddhist diagnosis of the human predicament, why there is suffering true, and the prescription for, uh, for, for the human predicament uh, powerful and effective? Well, that's largely what this course is about. And 
I hope it's not too much of a plot spoiler to say that I do think that modern psychology is in some respects lending support uh, to Buddhist ideas. For example, I think uh, psychology does show us that the certain deceptions, distortions are built into the human mind and actually that we do suffer as a result. Um, and I think even some of the more radical sounding Buddhist doctrines are, are getting some support. For example, uh, Buddhism says that there is a sense in which the self, that is the thing I think of as running the show, the thing inside me, um, does not exist uh, in a sense. And I think uh, psychology is also raising real questions about the actual nature of what we think of as the self. Now, when I talk about modern psychology, I definitely mean to include evolutionary psychology. And that is the study of how the human mind was shaped by natural selection. And I think there is evidence that uh, some of these delusions that the mind is subject to were actually built in by natural selection for reasons we'll come to. Uh, the mind is kind of programmed that way. But to say that something is natural or was engineered by natural selection isn't to say that it's not changeable. And in fact, uh, part of the idea of Buddhism is to do what you might call kind of counter-programming uh, of, of the brain, um, in particular through such techniques as meditation, and kind of neutralize some of these tendencies that I would say were built into the brain by natural selection. And in fact, one thing I like about Buddhism is the sheer audacity of it. You know, it's kind of like a rebellion against our creator, natural selection. It, it very much uh, wants, to, wants to run in opposition to some of the logic by which natural selection wired the brain. Now, I should emphasize that it's not a complete rebellion against natural selection. Uh, Buddhism uh, does make use of some things natural selection ingrained in us, um, including you know, love, compassion, rational thought. But still, it's a pretty thoroughgoing rebellion we're talking about. <clears throat> now, can the, can the rebellion be successful? I've already suggested that modern psychology lends support to, to some of the Buddha's diagnosis of the human predicament. Um, but what about the prescription? Can the prescription laid out by Buddhism uh, end or greatly alleviate human suffering by making us see the world more clearly? Well, we're going to be hearing from some people who say that it's worked for them. These are people I've talked to over the last few months. But I want to emphasize that I'm not just interested in the question of whether, whether meditation has made them happier made them suffer less, but whether it has done that by helping them see the world more clearly, whether dispelling these illusions that seem to be built into us is the key to happiness. Now, in looking at this issue, we will also be hearing from some prominent psychologists that I've also been having conversations with over the last few months. Um, and we'll be looking at various kinds of evidence, brain scans, social psychology experiments, and we'll also be hearing a little bit from me about my experiences with meditation. I'm not a hardcore meditator, I don't meditate hours a day, um, but I do try to meditate every day. Um, and perhaps more important, I have done some of these uh, one-week silent meditation retreats, which are pretty, pretty intense and involve a whole lot of meditation and not much else. Um, and they can have dramatic effects on your consciousness. And I think these have given me a glimpse 
of what some of these much more serious meditators uh, experience and the conclusions they reach about how their mind um, is working. Uh, these retreats are really probably the main thing that got me interested in this whole area and, and, and they're the reason that I decided to research it and write about it and teach about it. At the same time, my interest also grows out of my previous work in a kind of natural way. Uh, about 20 years ago, I wrote a book called The Moral Animal about evolutionary psychology when that term, evolutionary psychology, was just starting to circulate. Um, and then I went to teach uh, in the psychology department of Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, for a while. Meanwhile, I was getting more interested in religion, and I wrote a book called The Evolution of God, about the emergence of the Abrahamic God. And in the last few chapters of that, I addressed the question of whether uh, there can be a religion that is viable in the modern world, whether you could have something you could call a religion that is fully compatible with modern science. And now I'm kind of returning to that question here, um, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to sharing what my thinking with you and my findings with you. So now let's uh, dive into the course and move on to the second segment of Lecture 1. Lecture 1, Part 2, Feelings and Illusions. In this segment of Lecture 1, I'm going to talk a little about our feelings, our emotions, and I'm going to do that from two perspectives, from the perspective of Buddhism and then also from the perspective of evolution. In other words, from the perspective of somebody who's trying to figure out you know, why our feelings have certain properties, why evolution created them that way. Uh, and here I'm kind of jumping ahead to things we're going to cover in, in greater detail later in the course, but I did want to give you uh, a taste of them. Uh, for one thing, I wanted to give you a, a sense for kind of some of the practical payoff from meditation and also a sense for some of the larger themes um, that lie ahead. Now, a few months ago, um, I was in Vienna, in Austria, at a big conference on interfaith dialogue, and there were people from all kinds of religions there, and one of them was a Buddhist nun uh, named Yifa, Y-I-F-A, from Taiwan. Uh, in fact, she's a pretty prominent uh, Buddhist nun. She's written books about Buddhism. Um, and I found myself talking to her, uh, and we got to talking about meditation, and I asked her if I could videotape her because I knew I was going to be teaching this course, and I thought I'd like to share some of her thoughts with you. And she said, sure, and so I pulled out my cell phone, and I pressed record, um, and I asked her, uh, how can meditation change the way you view your feelings? And here's what she said. When you uh, get angry or, you know, you have a great emotion, and you will grasp that feeling is real. But when you are meditated or contemplate on those sensations, the anger, fear, or anxiety, and you will find very interesting, those things are not real, not concrete. So it's to help you to see the nature of a fear, fear or, you know, anxiety or horror, all kinds of emotion. Mm -hmm. And you find it's very different. Like when you use a kind of a meditative, look at from kind of from inside and you make an analysis kind of, a, okay, 
is this is so called the anger. And you find it's just like a, you watch a movie. The movie is it's a kind of a, you know picture by picture emotion, and you you grasp it as real. But when you uh, you know take a, a, a one by one, a piece by piece, it's not real. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, if you could just convince yourself that some of your most troublesome, unpleasant feelings aren't real and kind of liberate yourself from them. Now, that does lead to the question, uh, what does it even mean to say that feelings are real? Um, you know, after all, isn't the definition of a feeling just this thing we experience? So as long as you're, as you're experiencing it, it, isn't it, isn't it real? Um, well, that's a good question. It's a challenging question. And in fact, it's so challenging that I think I'll dodge it for just right now and promise to get back to it later. What I would say for now is that on the one hand, it's not, you know, found in core Buddhist doctrine anywhere, the assertion that, you know, feelings aren't real in so many words. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of Buddhist meditators who would know exactly what Yifa's talking about. And it is part of Buddhist thought, quite explicitly, that our feelings are not reliable guides to reality, in a sense. They're not entirely trustworthy, okay? And, and uh, meditation is, is a technique for, among other things, giving yourself from some critical distance from your feelings to avoid being misled by them. Now, one reason it matters whether feelings are really reliable is that feelings can influence your perceptions and your thoughts. And, and this is something that becomes more evident through meditation, as you observe your mind, you can realize that this is happening in a subtler way than you had, than you had uh, previously thought. Um, and this kind of influence of feelings on perception and thought uh, is also something that psychologists have paid more attention to recently. And in fact, there's a, a very interesting experiment um, about this that, uh, that I want to talk about now. Um, what do you see here? Is this a squirrel? Or is it an alligator's head? If it's a squirrel, you see the, that these as the eyes, and this as the tail, and these as the paws. If you think it's an alligator's head emerging from the water, then these are the eyes, this is the snout, and here are the menacing um, teeth, okay? And so too for, for this. Is this a rope or a snake? Is this a meat cleaver or a cooking pot? Um, well, you know, most people, when they see one of these things, they make a snap judgment. What's interesting is what researchers recently found about how you can influence the snap judgments people make. What the researchers did was, they showed these three pictures to people for one second and asked them what they saw. But first, they exposed these people to one of three different conditions. Either they played kind of happy music, or they played no music, or they played scary music that sounded like this, And then they asked them, what did you see here? Uh, now, it turns out that the happy music didn't have much of an effect one way or the other compared to just hearing no music. But if you look at these graphs, you can see that the scary music had a pronounced effect. So in the case of the snake, um, about 30% of the people who heard no music saw a snake as opposed to a coiled rope. And, and roughly 70% of the people who heard the scary music thought they saw a snake. Now, if you ask, why is the brain built like this so that our feelings can influence our perceptions in this way? 
um, it might help to kind of step outside of this contrived laboratory condition and imagine a, a real-life scenario. Suppose you're about to take a hike in what you've just learned is rattlesnake terrain. And in fact, you've just heard that, that a few weeks ago someone was bitten by a snake and died. Well, that's going to change your frame of mind as you take your walk. You're going to be at least modestly fearful. Um, and that's going to change the things you pay attention to. Uh, the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek playwright Sophocles said, to a man who is afraid, everything rustles. And that's very much the idea. You're going to be very attentive to rustling sounds. And if you hear one uh, and look down to see what's going on, and let's say it turns out it's actually a lizard darting across your path, well, there's a good chance that for a second you're going to actually think it's a snake. Or if, you, if there happens to be an actual coiled rope, as in that experiment, you would probably interpret that as the snake. Now, from natural selection's point of view, this actually makes sense, right? The, the, these kind of false positives actually make sense uh, because, you know, it's better safe than sorry. It's, it's, it, even if you, you jump out of the way 99 times out of 100 and it's not a snake, well, if, if that same fear that made you do that that made you see a snake that isn't there, make sure that you've jumped out of the way on, on the occasion when the snake is there, well then all that other trouble and those other 99 times was worth it from natural selection's point of view. Okay, so this is a reminder that natural selection designs organisms ultimately to do one thing, that is get genes into the next generation. Genetically based traits that are conducive to getting genes into the next generation and surviving long enough to do that are favored by natural selection. Um, so it's not really uh, high on natural selection's agenda necessarily that we see the world clearly. If it's the case that an illusion, seeing an actual illusion, will help us survive or help us get our genes passed on, then uh, that is the tendency that natural selection will favor. So we're not really, our brains aren't built to see the truth per se. Now, a couple of bits of nuance I want to add to this. First of all, whenever I say natural selection designs brains or organisms, designs should be in quotes, okay? It's, it's kind of a metaphor. Natural selection obviously isn't conscious, but it does produce organisms that look as if they were designed by a conscious designer to do ultimately one thing, get their genes transmitted. And the second thing I'd add is that it, it fairly often, you know, is in, in, in our, our interests, even by natural selection's lights, to see things clearly, okay? So if you ask, why am I not about to, to uh, walk over and run into that wall? Um, the answer is, because I see very clearly where the wall is, and I have a very healthy aversion to running into walls. And if you ask, um, why, uh, when I leave this building, am I not going to get run over by a car? One answer is, well, I will hear the cars coming, and I will pay a lot of attention to that. But even there, there is a kind of illusion. Um, it turns out that when people hear things, possibly threatening things coming, um, they actually overestimate how soon they will get there. That seems to be built into us and, and actually also into our, our primate relatives. So it seems to be a product of natural selection. And again, it makes sense. It's the better safe than uh, sorry principle. Okay, so the point of this is just to draw one basic parallel, okay? Buddhism says that we should be skeptical of our feelings. They are not necessarily truthful guides uh, to reality. And indeed, that we should be skeptical of some of the thoughts and the perceptions that feelings foster.
evolutionary psychology also says a certain kind of skepticism makes sense because um, we are not necessarily designed to see the truth. And in some cases, our, our minds are actually designed to uh, see what are literally illusions. Now, the stakes of this may not seem especially high. I mean, how often do you actually find yourself hiking in, in rattlesnake terrain? Um, but sometimes the stakes are higher. So some other psychologists found that if they show people a scary movie, in this case it was Silence of the Lambs, or show them part of the movie, and then show them pictures of men in a different ethnic group from theirs, uh, these people are more likely to see menacing, angry expressions on the faces of these men than people who have not seen uh, part of the scary movie. Um, and again, you can imagine, you know, as with the rattlesnake illusion, you can imagine this coming in handy. Maybe you're in a, in, in, in a kind of dicey neighborhood and you get some cues that maybe uh, you should get out of there. That creates fear and the fear makes you kind of hyper vigilant and maybe even makes you kind of imagine menacing expressions aren't there. But it does do you the service of, of getting you to a safer place. Could work like that. But at the same time, remember that one reason politicians manipulate the emotions of people when these politicians want to go to war is because by manipulating people's emotions, you can change their perceptions. You can change their perception of the people that the politicians want to go to war with. So these things do matter. Um, and it's really worthwhile to figure out exactly what the interaction is among feelings and thoughts and perceptions and how collectively they can distort our view of the world. And, and figuring that out is a lot of what this course is about. Uh, now, let's go back to square one in, in the next segment and look at some basic Buddhist doctrine, in particular, uh, the Buddha's ideas about why people suffer. Lecture one, part three, the first two noble truths. So here's a question. Which recording artist sang the most Buddhist song in the history of popular music? Now, obviously, there's no officially correct answer to that question, but if you want to know someone that I think should at least be in the running for that title, that is, believe it or not, this guy. That's right, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, who famously sang the lyric, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, if you've read much Buddhist scripture, you probably don't recall running into that phrase, and that's because I don't think it's there. But it does capture a lot of the spirit of what is called the first noble truth. And that's what we're going to talk about in this segment of Lecture 1, along with the second noble truth. Together, they constitute the Buddha's diagnosis of the human predicament. Then later, we'll be talking about the third and fourth noble truths, which embody the Buddha's prescription, his cure for what ails us. These, these four noble truths are foundational to Buddhist thought. The Buddha delivered them in a famous sermon at Deer Park shortly after attaining enlightenment, which in turn happened after he had meditated under a Bodhi tree for a very long time. Now, I should stop here and admit that we don't really know whether what I just said is true. Uh, we don't know if the Buddha delivered that sermon or what he said at it. If he did, we don't know whether he sat under a Bodhi tree. So far as we know, the story of the Buddha and what he said was not written down for a very long time after he lived. So whenever you hear me say the Buddha said this, the Buddha thought that, strictly speaking what I mean is according to Buddhist scripture, the Buddha said this, the Buddha thought that. What we do know 
is that the Buddhist teachings were being promulgated well more than two millennia ago, centuries before the time of Jesus, who of course is another foundational religious figure whose sayings we can't really pin down with confidence. Of course, as a matter of faith, people may believe that any given foundational religious figure said various things, and that's fine with me, but as a matter of historical scholarship, we just can't be sure. So the first noble truth, the one that I'm suggesting has a kind of Mick Jagger aspect, uh, is usually translated into English as the truth of suffering. But a lot of scholars think that suffering is really not an adequate translation of the word the Buddha used. It's not that the word is wrong, it's just that it doesn't capture the full breadth of what may have originally been meant by the word. So maybe we should take a uh, look at the word itself, and for this purpose, and at the risk of seeming like a relic from a simpler era, I'm going to make use of a blackboard and an analog information technology known as chalk. This is the word that is typically translated as suffering. As you can see, I've written it twice with two different spellings. The reason for that is that one is the Sanskrit version, and one is in Pali, an ancient language closely related to Sanskrit. The reason this is worth talking about a little is because this is true of key Buddhist terms in general. As you read about Buddhism, you may encounter them in one language or in the other. And in some cases, it really matters because that might keep you from even recognizing the term. So, for example, if you ran into this term, Nibbana, you might say, what is that? Uh, whereas, if you ran into it in this form, Nirvana, you would probably have a slightly clearer idea. Sorry about my handwriting. Um, nirvana means, of course, liberation, liberation from suffering, um, and that is what you get, in theory, if you follow the Four Noble Truths all the way to the end. And there's one other very important term that can appear in either language and is also related to the Four Noble Truths, and that is, in probably the form you'll see it most commonly, Dharma, or if you see it in the Pali, it is Dhamma. And it's a very interesting and rich word with a lot of meanings. We don't have time to go into all of them. I want to mention a couple, though. Probably the most common meaning of Dharma is to refer to the Buddha's teachings, and by extension, the path that the Buddha said we should tread, okay? But there is a more fundamental meaning of Dharma. It refers to kind of the truth about the way the universe is structured, or about the, the natural and moral law that structures the universe. That is, the truth that is reflected in the Buddha's writings and in his teachings and the, the truth whose implications are spelled out in his teachings. Um, but it's the truth itself, not, not just the, the Buddhist teachings about the truth. So, um, in other words, you could say that Dharma means both the truth about the way things are, and then in, in the other sense of the term, the truth about the way we should live in recognition of the way things are, that is, the, the, the path that is spelled out in the Buddha's teachings. 
So it, this is kind of reminiscent of that William James quote we heard earlier, where James says that the essence of religion is the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme good lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves to that order. So Dharma in the, in the second sense, in the fundamental sense of the term, is the unseen order. And then it is spelled out to us in the first sense of the term Dharma, in the Buddhist teachings. And also there we find out how to harmoniously adjust ourselves to the unseen order and, and thereby realize our supreme good, which is nirvana. Um, if, again, we, we make it all the way through the, the Four Noble Truths and follow them uh, and their implications precisely, which brings us back to dukkha. Okay, now, as I said, a lot of scholars think that the translation of dukkha as suffering is not, not wholly adequate. And if you ask, well, what other senses of the term might we add? Um, well, uh, the answer is, and here's a clue. That's right, the most commonly nominated supplementary translation of dukkha, supplementary to suffering, is unsatisfactoriness in life. And one virtue of adding this sense to the meaning of dukkha is that it makes the first noble truth sound a little more plausible. Because, you know, the first noble truth emphasizes the pervasiveness of suffering. One way it's often paraphrased in English is life is suffering. And, you know, the Buddha never quite says that in so many words so far as I know. Life is dukkha. But it, that line does capture the, the sense of things, that, that this dukkha thing is a pervasive part of life. Um, and, you know, that you may just, that may not make any sense to you, right? I mean, there have obviously been times in your life when you found, felt, uh, you know, you were not suffering. Um, but if you add this sense of unsatisfactoriness to the word, it makes a little more sense, I think. So, just to give you an example, let's take one of my favorite things, powdered sugar donuts. Okay, I don't eat them all that often, I'm proud to say, but that does sometimes take some self-restraint. You know, I'm talking about, you may have seen them in these little six packs of donuts at a convenience store, each one small enough to pop into your mouth. And if you ask me, while I'm eating one of these, am I suffering? The answer is, I would say, no, are you kidding? Obviously not. I'm not suffering. On the other hand, it probably is true that, you know, just about as soon as I start swallowing the one donut, I'm already thinking about that next donut, already kind of yearning for another donut at some level. Um, and the fact that I want another donut means that, in a literal sense, I didn't get satisfaction. If you get satisfaction, you don't want any more, right? Um, so this, you know, this, this, this lends some credibility to the first noble truth. The idea that there's always a kind of undercurrent of yearning, no matter what we get, you know, uh, whether it's donuts or money or sex, you know, feels good, but eventually the time comes when the thrill wears off, you want some more. Um, it just, the pleasure doesn't last. And this, this business of things not lasting is a major theme of the Buddhas. Impermanence is a very common word in Buddhist texts. Uh, the idea is that, you know, nothing is permanent in the world, certainly not pleasure, and yet we 
seem to try to cling to things. And here we're actually moving into the second noble truth, which announces the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering and unsatisfactoriness. And that cause is, it's a word that means something like thirst. It's often translated as craving. And there's a sense of clinging, of trying to hang on. And the Buddha said that in clinging to things that won't last, you know, we're evincing a kind of delusion. We're just not getting the picture about the impermanence of things. We're not reckoning with the truth about reality. Now, I want to emphasize that the stakes of this go way beyond powdered sugar donuts in a couple of senses. First of all, we're not just talking about kind of raw sensory pleasures, okay? It's, it's gratifying things in general, you know, getting an A on that next exam, um, winning the esteem of your friends, winning the acclaim of society at large, you know, whatever makes you feel good, eventually that feeling will fade and you're going to want more. Psychologists refer to this as the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic meaning pleasure-seeking, and treadmill meaning you're not getting anywhere. You keep trying, you keep striving after happiness, you don't get any closer to it. And, and this refers to the, the finding that when people do get happier, a new job makes them happier, they win the lottery, as a rule, their happiness before too long returns to its normal level. Okay. Now there's a second sense in which the stakes are higher than, than powdered sugar donuts. And that is that, although it sounds like the first two noble truths are all about things that we, that we seek, that we desire, it also covers anxieties and fears. Anxieties about, you know, being criticized in public or something, or going to some cocktail party you don't want to go to. Um, the fear of being eaten by a lion or something, you know. And that, you know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound right that you could include these things under the rubric of craving, right? Because you don't, you know, social rejection, you don't, you know, you don't want that. You want to get away from that. You don't want to get closer to it. And, you know, a, a charging lion is something that you do not want to embrace. You want to get away from. Um, and for that reason, I'm almost kind of surprised that in the, in the second noble truth, we actually don't hear about aversion to things as a problem because elsewhere in Buddhist texts, there is a lot of emphasis on aversion and sometimes it's put on kind of an equal plane with craving as the source of our troubles. But it is true that, you know, you can phrase these things in a way such that anxieties and fears do fit into the second noble truth as it's stated. So you would say, for example, well, if you fear social criticism, if you have anxiety about that, or if you have anxiety about doing badly at some presentation you're going to give, that's because you're clinging to your social status. You're attached to your social status. That's the problem, it's attachment. Or if you fear a charging lion, that's because you are attached to your own existence. You, you cling to, you crave your own existence. And, you know, you may at this point say, wait a second, you know, I'm, you know this is where I get off the boat. If, if Buddhism is telling me I shouldn't be attached to my own existence, you know, I'm just not interested in this program. Um, well, 
you know, I'm not trying to recruit you, I'm just telling you what the Buddha's uh, diagnosis does explicitly include attachment to your existence as part of the problem. I do want to emphasize that Buddhism doesn't recommend that you cross the street without looking both ways or anything else. You can be a good Buddhist and tend to your own uh, survival as you, as you do now. And as long as I'm emphasizing that Buddhism is not as grim as it may sound sometimes, I would add that the idea isn't, as far as this craving business goes, that we should never be attracted to anything or that we can never enjoy any pleasures. The question is whether we're clinging to things. In the, in the next lecture, we're going to deal with the third and fourth noble truths, that is the Buddha's prescription. Um, but in the next segment of this lecture, we're going to look at kind of the evolutionary psychology of the first two noble truths. We're going to drill down into the question of why it is that pleasure evaporates and why it is that we have so much trouble reckoning with that. Why is the brain built in such a way that pleasure is fleeting, but we really focus a lot more on the pleasure than the fleetingness. Lecture 1, Part 4 Evolutionary Psychology and the First Two Noble Truths So we've just seen that according to the Second Noble Truth, the source of dukkha, the source of suffering and unsatisfactoriness, is our craving, our attempt to hang on to things that don't last, including pleasure. Um, and I used powdered sugar donuts as my own personal example of that. Um, the Buddha, as we saw, said that our failure to kind of grasp this dynamic was just another example of our failing to see the world clearly. Now, in this segment of Lecture 1, we're going to drill down a little into the biological mechanics of craving and of the evaporation of, of pleasure, and we're going to ask why it is that, if the Buddha was right, why it is that we do fail to get the picture about pleasure and how fleeting it is. Um, now, in Buddhist writing, when, when the Buddha talks about our failure to see things clearly, he often uses a word that is typically translated as delusion. But I want to emphasize that sometimes that word is a little bit of an overstatement. So, for example, when I'm gazing at powdered sugar donuts, you know, um, there's no point where I'm, you know, thinking that there are foreign agents conspiring to assassinate me or anything. There's not even a point where I actually think the pleasure is going to last forever. And in fact, if you said, well, do you think it's going to last for 10 minutes? I'd probably say no. But at the same time, as I look forward to eating those donuts, I'm thinking a lot more about the pleasure than about the evaporation of the pleasure. And I'm certainly not thinking about, you know, well, maybe the sugar rush will subside and then I'll feel all unsettled. I'm just focused on that moment of pleasure. Now, in other cases, uh, something more like delusion may actually happen, you know, with infatuation. If you've ever had a serious crush on someone, you, you may recall that, uh, you know, you had a pretty distorted view of things. You, you had a lot of trouble seeing any blemishes or deficiencies in the person. It was all good, right? And there was this idea that, wow, should you ever be so lucky as to find yourself in a relationship with that person, everything would be better, probably eternally. And, you know, Relationships, needless to say, are in fact 
you know, more complicated than that. Um, and so too, with, a, with say a job you really want, you're, you know, if you really want that thing, you're looking forward to it, thinking about all the great things it's gonna bring. You're not thinking about the hassles that all jobs bring. And there may be a sense that if you can just get this job, then you can relax, then you will have arrived. But of course, you haven't really arrived. You know, the, the gratification is not going to last forever. It never lasts forever. Um, now, if you wanna look at parts of the brain that are relevant, to the failure of gratification to last forever. One obvious candidate would be the neurotransmitter dopamine. If you read much in the popular science press, you've probably read about dopamine as the pleasure chemical, the reward chemical. Um, the true story is actually a lot more complicated than that. The effects dopamine has depend on the, the part of the brain you're in, which neurons are involved, which receptors are involved, um, and so on. There's also the question of, does dopamine actually cause pleasure, or is it just correlated with pleasure? The, um, for our purposes, the, the mere correlation is pretty much enough. The fact that dopamine seems to be correlated uh, with pleasure. Um, so we're going to look at a little data from a study in which they monitored uh, very precisely the neurons in monkeys that are involved in the release of dopamine and are in a part of the brain where dopamine seems to be correlated with pleasure and reward. So what they did, they gave a little fruit juice uh, to a monkey, and here's what happened. So that is a dopamine spike. Um, if you wanna ask, uh, how long does that last? How, how long are we talking about along that horizontal axis? Well, that's about a third of a second of dopamine spike. So assuming that in this monkey, uh, dopamine is correlated with pleasure. You know, that's, that's pretty brief pleasure. You know, if monkeys could talk, he might have said, this particular monkey might have said, uh, wow, that was impermanent. You know, maybe the, the monkey condition is very much like the human condition, and pleasure just tends to evaporate pretty rapidly. And if that is the case, uh, then that's all the more reason to look at natural selection as a possible explanation for why pleasure does evaporate, you know, if, if monkeys and humans are exhibiting some of the same dynamics. Um, so the question is, why does natural selection build brains like this, where pleasure is so fleeting? Why not just leave that dopamine spigot on? It could, you know, you could keep dishing out dopamine for 10 seconds, 20 seconds in principle, but that doesn't happen. Why is that? And, and, and why do we seem, you know, not to really get the picture in our everyday lives about uh, how rapidly the pleasure is going to um, dissipate. Uh, why did natural selection design our brains like this? Now, as I've said before, whenever I say something is designed by natural selection, design should be in quotes, natural selection is not a conscious designer, still it does create animals that look as if they were designed by a pretty smart designer with one thing in mind, to get them to get their genes into the next generation. So it is a fair thing to do as a kind of thought experiment to put ourselves in the shoes of natural selection and ask if we were designing organisms, how would we design their brains? You know, if we wanted them to get their genes into the next generation. I mean, granted that eating helps them do that by keeping them alive. Sex obviously helps them do that. Um, and even with humans and non-human primates, things like uh, 
Elevating their social status helps them do that because it seems to be the case that in primates and some, uh, some other parts of the animal kingdom, social status is correlated with getting genes into the next generation. So um, it is a fair question. How would you design these brains if you were natural selection? I would submit that there are three principles of design that would make sense if you want animals to reach these goals. Okay, first of all, when the animals do reach the goals, they have food, they have sex, um, they should get some pleasure. Pleasure is what reinforces behavior, makes animals more likely to do whatever led them to the goal in the first place. Principle number two, the pleasure should not last forever. Obviously, if you ate one meal and just blissed out, you know, and, and, and never felt the, the unpleasant sensation of hunger again, you would never eat again. You would die, okay? And if you had sex and then just kind of basked in the afterglow for a really long time, thinking about how wonderful it had been, you know, and meanwhile, in your species, some other animal had sex, said, well, that was great, but, you know, I'm starting to feel restless. I think I'll go get some food or do something to elevate my social status or maybe go find some more sex. Well, that animal is going to get more genes in the next generation than you will. So these genes for restlessness and for, you know, not being satisfied for very long that that animal has are going to do better than your genes. The third principle of design I would submit is that animals should focus more on the pleasure that reaching goals will bring than on the subsequent evaporation of the pleasure, okay? Um, you know, obviously, if you're focused on that pleasure, if you're focused on, on how good it's going to feel to reach the goal, you'll reach the goal. Whereas if you're sitting there thinking, you know, the pleasure is going to be over in a nanosecond. Why work so hard? Well, you know, you're going to probably wind up, you know, sitting in your room alone, full of ennui, reading existential philosophy or something, you know, and that's definitely no way to get your genes into the next generation. So, I would say that these, these three principles of design, they make sense in terms of natural selection, and they, they help make sense of Buddhist teaching, right? The Buddha said that pleasure tends to evaporate, and it leaves us unsatisfied, and it seems to be the case that pleasure is designed to evaporate so that it will leave us unsatisfied and we will be motivated to go out and do more work and, and, and check off more bullet points on natural selection's agenda. The Buddha said, we seem not to get the picture about pleasure. We focus on the pleasure and not on the fleetingness of the pleasure. And that too makes sense in terms of natural selection. Focusing on the pleasure is a good motivator. Okay, let's get back to that monkey. Now, in the data we saw about that monkey's brain, we didn't see anything about anticipating pleasure. Um, and that's because, in that case, the monkey couldn't anticipate the pleasure because the fruit juice came out of the blue. The monkey was not expecting it. They just dropped it on the monkey's tongue. Um, however, later in the experiment, they did make anticipation possible. What they did was, when they turned on a light, it meant that if the monkey would reach over and touch a lever, then there would be fruit juice. And they trained the monkey to 
you know, behave in accordance with that principle. And here is what you see in that case. So here, the light goes on, we're in the zone of anticipation, and now you see a, a dopamine spike here. And, you know, that seems to be, I mean, you can't get inside the monkey's brain, but it's a reasonable conjecture that what's happening is the monkey is anticipating the pleasure, you know, focusing on the pleasure that is to come in somewhat the way that we humans seem to, uh, right? I mean, it's, you know, anticipation is not, is not just pleasure. There's also an anticipation, a kind of eagerness, a kind of excitement, but there is also um, you know, a kind of imagining of the actual pleasure that you're going to experience when you get the reward. You actually have some of that feeling, and that may be uh, one thing that's being captured here in this dopamine spike. Now, interestingly, uh, when the food actually shows up, what you see is this. They give the monkey the fruit juice, and there's no elevation of dopamine activity now. Now, I should emphasize this is kind of an extreme case. You know, they don't find in, in all the experiments done uh, of this sort, they don't always find that there's a complete suppression of the dopamine spike upon reward. And the other thing is that it took a lot of training to get the monkey to this point. So the behavior became really automatic. I might you know, kind of liken it to, in my case, again, to return to one of my vices, um, dark chocolate. Every afternoon I have some dark chocolate. The time comes when I decide that, that I deserve it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. It's, I can taste it. It's feeling good. I go downstairs. I get some. I may, you know, in a sense, not experience the pleasure at all. It's, the whole routine has become so automatic that I may just be thinking about some, something else. My mind may be uh, wandering. Okay. Um, so, again, this is the complete suppression of the dopamine spike is, you know, an extreme case. But what is, you know, quite common, what we, we can say is a pretty common dynamic is that, again, originally what you have is you get the reward, you get the spike in dopamine activity, um, and then, when the animal starts to be able to anticipate the reward, light goes on, get a pretty big dopamine spike, you get the reward, and then you get a much smaller spike than what you got before. And again, if I would conjecturally relate this to my own experience, I might guess that this is like, um, you know, I'm in a convenience store, I see that pack of powdered sugar donuts, I'm thinking about eating it, uh, it's, 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 it's all good, you know. Um, I, I go and I, uh, I, I grab it, take it to the counter, I buy it, um, and then I eat it and yeah, it, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, uh, but, you know, each successive bite is less okay, it's fine, but the anticipation was, was maybe where most of the pleasure happened, okay? Because at this point, I've done the work. The motivational system has, has gotten me to do the necessary work to obtain the food, to reach the goal. So you don't need a lot of additional motivation at this point, and uh, we don't see a whole lot of additional um, reinforcement here. Now, uh, I want to emphasize again 
that, uh, you know, this is pretty speculative, not just because we cannot get inside a monkey's brain, uh, and we don't know what's going on there, but because, um, you know, this, this science is still being worked out, there are differing interpretations of this kind of data, and, uh, you know, the, the story will continue to evolve. But it is consistent with the kinds of motivational dynamics that we would expect from a brain built by natural selection. Now, you may ask, why would natural selection have designed brains that are attracted to powdered sugar donuts? Because um, after all, they're not very good for us. And the answer is natural selection didn't, because after all, powdered sugar donuts were not part of the landscape when our lineage evolved. What was part of the landscape was just sweetness. You know, fruits had sweetness, fruits were good for you, and so that seems to be why we have a sweet tooth that can kind of now go overboard, you know, in a, in a convenience store now that junk food exists. Um, so to give you uh, an example of the kind of dynamic that may have been at play during evolution when there were no powdered sugar donuts, imagine one of our distant ancestors, maybe early human, even pre-human, spots some trees off in the distance, and they look like they might be fruit trees. And, you know, it's a hot day, it's a long walk, the animal's not crazy about doing that work, but they may be fruit trees, the animal remembers this taste of fruit and, you know, gets a little bit of a, gets a little bit of a dopamine spike, and that motivates it to go investigate. And it, it, it takes the trek, gets there, there is fruit, eats it, you know, a little more pleasure. You don't need a lot of pleasure at that point. You may not need a huge spike, but enough for a little reinforcement. And, you know, the brain built by natural selection has done its job, okay? Now, you may ask, if in cases where we are very used to the pleasure we're getting, you know, it's become routinized, like, like my, my eating the chocolate in the afternoon, so that often there's little, if any, pleasure in the actual eating of the chocolate and more pleasure in the anticipation. Why don't we just do the anticipation and then skip the eating? Because that's where the joy is anyway. And the answer as to why this won't work is this. When they turn the light on for this monkey and then don't deliver the fruit juice, you, you don't just get an absence of dopamine spike, you get a, a deficit of dopamine activity, okay? This, this presumably uh, corresponds to what I would call the letdown of, of unfulfilled anticipation. You know, you've probably done this, you know, gone to the refrigerator, you're, you're looking forward to that piece of cake, you open it, somebody's eating the cake. You don't just feel an absence of pleasure, you're actually let down. Um, and this, too, makes sense as a motivational device. You know, if you want to return to that scenario of our early ancestors, um, say they see the trees in the distance, could be fruit trees, they're motivated, they go over there, oh, there's no fruit, these aren't fruit trees. Well, you want them to not go over to those particular trees again. If you, you know, if you are building their brain, you want them to uh, avoid those trees. You want this to be a, an unhappy experience. So that's, that's uh, so it makes sense that it would be, it would make them actively unhappy to expect something and do some work to get it um, and then not find it.
So just to summarize, okay, there is this correspondence between the way you would expect natural selection to design a, design a brain and some basic principles of Buddhism. Buddha said pleasure doesn't last, leaves us unsatisfied, evolution seems to explain why. Buddha says we focus on pleasure and not on the fleetingness of pleasure. Evolution seems to explain why. Um, and this is another example of how natural selection doesn't care, care in quotes, of course, care whether we see the world clearly. We've already seen that, you know, sometimes it might be natural for us to see a snake that's not there, for us to see uh, an angry, menacing face when in fact the, the face is actually not objectively viewed angry and menacing. Um, and these were cases when natural selection kind of built illusion into the system. Um, and now we, we see another sense in which natural selection seems not to care if we don't see the world clearly. We also see something else here, which is that natural selection seems not to care if we're happy. From natural selection's point of view, happiness is just a tool. If making us happy at one moment will keep us motivated, fine. If making us unhappy, if making us unsatisfied, if making us suffer will get us to do the work that's on natural selection's agenda, then fine. In those cases, that will be the case. I said earlier that Buddhism is, in a sense, a kind of rebellion against natural selection. And now you can see one sense in which that's true. Because, you know, Buddhism wants us to see the world clearly all the time and aspires to end our suffering. Natural selection wants us to sometimes not see the world clearly and wants us to suffer sometimes. So, clearly, you know, the Buddhist program is to some extent in opposition to the logic of and the, the implicit goals of natural selection. Um, but in a way, I think we haven't even seen the half of it, really, to see the full scale of what I call the rebellion of Buddhism against natural selection. You need to see the Buddhist specific strategy for realizing these, these goals of ending suffering and helping us see the world clearly. So to see that, you need to look at the, the third and fourth noble truths, the Buddhist prescription, for the human predicament, and that's what we're going to turn to in the next lecture.